Father, we do thank you for the beauty of this day and the gloriousness of the snow-covered mountains around us. We're reminded of your majesty and of your power and of your great care for us. And Father, we're so uh, blessed that we have in our possession the Word of God to study, to absorb, to make a part of our lives. And I pray, Father, we'll be responsible to do that and that we will seek to know you better because you are the one that brings to us eternal life. And even as we study further in the life of Abraham today, we're so grateful for that man of God in spite of all of his failures and uh, for Sarah and her failures, and yet in the midst of it all, we find that they were um, a man and a woman who were dedicated to you and for whom you uh, have, and you've raised them up as examples to us, and we're grateful to you for that. Father, bless this day. Bless those who are not with us today for various reasons. Minister to their hearts, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. I'd like to uh, read the last few verses again of chapter 21. A few things I wanted to finish saying there uh, before we move into chapter 22. Chapter 21, verse 28. Then Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What do these seven ewe lambs mean, which you have set by themselves? And he said, You shall take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, in order that it may be a witness to me that I dug this well. Therefore he called the place Beersheba, because there the two of them took an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. And Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, arose and returned to the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistine for many days. This particular chapter that we nearly completed last week uh, gives us, of course, the background for what we're going to be focusing on today and uh, next week as we look at chapter 22. Abraham went through many uh, events as we read about them in the 21st chapter, and one of them was the covenant, that treaty that was made between him and Abimelech, uh, but particularly the part that he was concerned uh, with was the uh, establishment of ownership of the well at Beersheba. I mentioned last time that in the dry, uh, semi-arid region of the uh, Negev, it was always important to have a well because rainfall was fairly sparse in that particular area. And so ownership of the well was contested, and he wanted Abimelech to uh, accord to him the ownership because he had actually dug the well. And so it was known as the Well of the Oath of the Seven, referring to the seven ulams. So this oath had sealed, by the gift of the lambs, he had sealed this covenant with uh, Abimelech relative to the well. Now, the ultimate guarantee, though, as far as Abraham was concerned, was not a, a human treaty with a neighboring nation. The ultimate guarantee to him was the fact that God had promised to him and to his posterity this land. And so he planted this oak tree, this tamarisk, which seems to be somehow related to the oak tree, 
uh, there at the well as a reminder to him and to his posterity of the covenant that God had made with Abraham for ownership of the land, for possession of the lamb, land. And I think what was really important here from this particular passage is we have a statement for the first time in Scripture referring specifically to the eternal state of God. Now, the eternality of God was implied, of course, in all the passages that we read up to this time. I mean, it's implied in the very fact that the book begins with, in the beginning, God. This implies, of course, that God has uh, been existing lot long before the world began, or had been existing long before the world began. But here we have Abraham actually acknowledging the, the fact that God was eternal. He calls him Yahweh El Olam, the eternal God, the Lord, the eternal God. And uh, most of us, I think, remember from the passage in Daniel where God is called the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days. That, of course, is, I think, part of the... Uh, the concept of the Ancient of Days was in Michelangelo's mind, I think, when he painted God on the, on the roof of the Sistine Chapel, and he paints God as long flowing white beard and long flowing white hair, you know, the Ancient of Days, thinking in human terms. And of course, that's about the best we can do as human beings, you know, speak of God as being Ancient of Days, and, and thus we make him a great grandfather or something of that nature. But we know, of course, that God in His eternal state is in an immutable state, an unchanging state. That the universe, that beyond the universe of time in which we live is God's world of eternity. And it's very difficult for us, being time-bound as we are, to think in eternal terms. We can say the words, we can say that God, as, in, as you read in, in Psalm 90 verse 3, where the same word is used here, that from everlasting to everlasting thou art God. This is the statement of Old Testament relative to the eternality of God. But do we really get a handle on it? Can we really grasp the unending nature of God? that he always has been, that he always will be, and that uh, this, this uh, world in which we live, this universe in which we live, which is time-bound, is not the ultimate. Back in the medieval world, they still believed in Aristotelian uh, concentric uh, spheres of the universe, that the whole universe was made up of 11 or so concentric crystalline spheres, Watch one, each one rotating around the next one. And the sun was fixed in one, and the moon in another, and the stars. Then out beyond at the very far uh, reaches was the Almighty, was God. And, you know, all of that has a finite uh, nature to it. And uh, the, the terms that we use about God indicate our finite ability to understand Him. I don't think we can really understand the immutable, unchangeable, well, I'm, I'm using synonyms here, a timeless God within our finite framework. But that's what Abraham is referring to here. And, and he broaches this idea in Scripture for the first time, at least as human acknowledgement of that fact. You and I, every day when we get up and we look in the mirror, are reminded of the fact that we live in an age of time and that we are changing, we live in a changeable world. 
and we're not always real thrilled with the changes which are taking place. We are subject to decay and we acknowledge that. Think about the world out there though. Think about the fact that you and I know that many of the great uh, leaders of entertainment especially have gone through I don't know how many facelifts and nose jobs and whatever else it is to try to always look eternally young because they have this great fear of, of being old and of, of passing off the scene because they have no hope beyond this life. This is where it's all at. And it really is, uh, to me, the thought that life uh, of life without Christ is, is a devastating thought. It's a hopeless thought. Life without knowledge of the eternal God, without the sense that you and I will dwell in the presence of the eternal God in that unending immutable state. Just to think we will be given bodies that will not decay one ounce over 10 million years. It's hard, well, we cannot really grasp that. We have to accept it by faith. Through the new birth, we know that we are born into that eternal realm, and that, I think, is greatly encouraging to us. And our faithful walk with Christ gives us uh, the hope of experiencing the reality of what we read here in, let me just read the verse to you uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, verse so often quoted, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. When we face God, we will begin to know the things that God has been doing down through time and eternity. We'll begin to understand the events of this life and, and our role in this life. Why did this happen to me here? Why, why did this happen there? Why did uh, this event take place? We will begin to see how all those pieces come together. We see through a glass darkly, as it says in the King James now. And we can surely testify to that, each and every one of us. How we just don't grasp, don't understand but, you know, that's all part of the life of faith. That, that was with Abraham. For 25 years, he saw through a glass very darkly. God had promised the sun would come, but he didn't come. And yet Abraham's faith didn't waver. Oh, he kind of, you know, moved in and out a little bit there, but the, the basic faith was there. And God honored that basic faith. But one day we will understand the mystery of this life. There are a lot of mysteries in this life, a lot of enigmas. Some of them, of course, are just kind of interesting little challenges like the Loch Ness Monster or something of that nature. But there are far greater mysteries that sometimes we uh, can ponder and ponder and never come to the resolution of that because that mystery is hidden with God and He hasn't chosen to reveal to I mean, for example, why Satan? <laughs> you know? If God knew what he would do, why did he ever create him in the first place? Why did he create the world knowing that Adam and Eve would fall? Well, we, we can guess at it now. We can say, well, we think because of what this passage says, and, and we do that. But really, what is the ultimate answer? Well, I don't know. <laughs> very good. There's an honest man. <laughs> A man of much experience. Uh, and that's the way we really need to be, uh, I think. And 
But there will be the day in which we will begin to see and begin to understand. The unexplainable will become the explained to us. Let's turn a little bit further over into 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is a producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. To me, that, that kind of brings it all together. It, it sometimes doesn't really satisfy us at a particular moment. We're going through a crisis. It seems like a horrible event that we're going through, and we say, oh, but how can you call this a momentary light affliction? It's easy for you to point that passage out to me because there's no problem in your life right now. Huh. <laughs> but, you know, <coughs> that's the way sometimes we feel. And, and quite often it doesn't do a person a whole lot of good to just keep pointing out passages that are supposed to help them not feel bad about the situation, and, and we need to be sympathetic. But at the same time, as we go through trials, we need to realize that compared to what will be the result eternally, they are but momentary. And, uh, you know, you read through that passage in, in Hebrews 11 where it tells about them being tossed into fires and sawed in half and all the rest of it for the glory of God. And, and all of this is considered to be a momentary light affliction in the face of the eternal weight of glory. Our outer man is decaying day by day, and we can all attest to that, but the inner man, the inner us, as we walk with Christ, is being renewed, and we should be becoming stronger every day. We should become uh, more mature in the faith and able to encourage and help one another. That's why those of us who are older are told that we are to minister to those that are younger. The older men are to be a model and an encouragement to the younger men and the older ladies to the younger ladies. And so it is to be because of the experience that we have had and the faith, hopefully, that that has built into our lives. In the meantime, while we're waiting for that dark glass to disappear, we have to live by faith. We have to accept the, the truth of God by faith. We have to walk in the light of faith. And as we move into the 22nd chapter of Genesis, we're going to find an act of faith that is really unsurpassed in, in Scripture, except, of course, in the life of Christ himself. Abraham planted the tree and went back and settled down there and lived at Beersheba. Let's look now at chapter 22 of Genesis, beginning at verse 1, reading through verse 8. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah 
and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham arose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go up yonder, and we will worship and return to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Talk about drama. Here we have the height of drama. This passage is rather painful to read because it records really one of the most severe tests to which a human being could be put. Charles Spurgeon wrote the following words about this passage. He says, This was at once the patriarch's crowning trial and grandest victory. And it came after he had obtained the choicest blessing of his life. And then he says, great privileges involve great trial. Another commentator, Kyle Yates, says, No test could have been more severe than the one God now imposed. No obedience could have been more perfect than Abraham's. Notice how this passage begins. It says, now it came about after these things. After what things? Well, the weaning of Isaac. Isaac became a weaned one. The ostracism of Hagar and Ishmael. And the account that we read about last week involving her and the Lord in the wilderness. And then finally, the establishment of the ownership of the wilderness of Beersheba. All of this had taken place probably many years before. Now, we know that they're living at Beersheba because in verse 19 of this chapter, it says, So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. So he was returning home to Beersheba where they had been living probably ever since the time he planted the oak tree there by the well. How many years passed? How long was it since the ostracism of Hagar and Ishmael and this event? How old was Isaac? Can we know how old Isaac was? I don't think so. I don't think we know how old he was. Thank you, Roland. 
But it seems that what happened here was Abraham and Sarah had settled down near Beersheba. They were living the typical semi-sedentary life of, of, of a nomad of that particular part of the world. There was a source of water there, so they didn't need to be traveling too far and wide. And they were enjoying themselves watching Isaac grow up, watching him play, watching him run around with the other young people, the children of, of the household and watching him learn how to herd animals, whatever all was involved in his training here in the household of Abraham and Sarah. And they were delighted in watching this young man grow. Their life was quiet. It was prosperous. Then, like a bolt out of the blue, God broke into their lives again. It seems that there had been many, many years since God had spoken to Abraham. At least there's no record of God speaking to Abraham in the intervening years from the time when he said to him, listen to your wife Sarah, what Hagar, what, what needs to be done with Hagar and Ishmael is, is what I want you to do, what she's asking I want you to do. There, there's no record that after that God spoke again to Abraham. Are we talking about a decade later? I think we're probably talking about a decade, more or less. I, it seems that Isaac was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 10, 12, 14. We don't know how old he really was, of course, here. But uh, he was not yet a man, and he wasn't a little boy. He was in that period in between. We're told in this same first verse that what, what's to follow is prefaced by the words that God tested Abraham. We know that what is to follow is a test. Now the Hebrew word which is used here and translated in the uh, New American Standard as test is translated in the King James as tempted. Now our understanding of the word temptation today is usually to be enticed to do evil. And so we know that the way we understand the word tempt today, probably that word as it's translated in the King James isn't the best one to use in modern English, although in the day it was translated, uh, it more meant test because the translators knew that was the understanding here. And uh, we all should be well aware of, if we are not, and I'm sure we are, uh, the fact that God tests no one, tempts no one, I should say, in verse uh, 13 of James 1, no one, let no one say when he is tempted that I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. God does not tempt us to do evil. Scripture, James goes on to say that when we fall into evil, it's because of our own lusts. We're drawn into evil. And God is not responsible for temptation, but God is responsible for testing. And that's exactly what he is doing here to Abraham and even ultimately to Sarah. The word can be translated proved or assayed, as in you assay gold to determine its purity. Now the question is, why? After all that Abraham and Sarah have been through, 25 years waiting for the son to be born, and then the whole deal with Hagar and Ishmael. All this has transpired. Why in the world should another test come along for Abraham and for Sarah? 
Well, I think the answer is partially found in the eighth chapter of Deuteronomy, and I'd like to turn to that for a moment. I find this to be a um, succinct statement of the way God views His people and what God knows to be true about His people. Deuteronomy chapter 8. All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply, and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. And you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these forty years, that he might, what? Humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you, and he let you be hungry, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell those forty years." Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you, just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you shall eat food without scarcity, in which you shall not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given to you. But notice what follows. Beware lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. <clears throat> lest when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart becomes proud and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint in the wilderness he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and strength, the strength of my hand, made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And it shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God.
Boy, to me, there is so much wrapped up in one short chapter there. God really puts it on the line to the people of Israel and to us today, what it's really all about. We're not to live by bread alone. It's not by the might and strength of our bodies to be able to earn a living and to have a nice house and all these, you know, a car and all the rest of it. That's not what life's about. Life is to live by what proceeds out of the mouth of God, which is, of course, this word. To live in obedience to Him and to recognize that all that we have comes from Him and He can take it any moment He wishes to if that is for our good. And we need to understand that because that's the background for Abraham here. Abraham was living well. He was prospering. He was a wealthy man. Life was good for him. There was the water. He had his son that had been promised. And, you know, they had their health and they had peace. And then God broke in. God broke in. God does not break in to bring evil. God does not break in to, to tempt us to evil. But God does break in to test us, just as he broke in here to test Abraham, Sarah, and even ultimately Isaac. Now the wording here in this 8th chapter of Deuteronomy would, could lead us to think that God tests people in order to discover whether those people will be true to Him. That's kind of a human way of looking at it. And God puts it that way so that we might understand. But God doesn't have to test us to know how we're going to react because God knows all things. God knows the end from the beginning. He knew your life before you were born. He knows the end of your life before you come to it. He knows what you will do in every situation. So the real purpose I shouldn't use the word that way. Uh, so, so, so the purpose ultimately is so that you and I will know whether we will stand in the midst of trial. So that we ourselves will know whether we are people of faith. Whether God is really in the center of our lives. Because it's easy for us to talk about it. Say, oh, I'm, I'm right in the center of God's will. I'm walking right in the palm of His hand. But are we? Really? you know, each and every day? Do we walk faithfully with Him? Does this book serve as our guidepost? Or, or do we live sometimes according to the principles of this world? Do we try to circumvent some of God's commandments because they don't seem rational, they don't seem reasonable? Now, we, we have been living in a country that was born in the age of reason. This country came into existence in the middle of the Enlightenment, a period of time when, when God was viewed by many as, yes, a reality, but He was the prime cause. He was a, a very distant uh, being that created it all, but He wasn't personal. He, he didn't hear prayer because He didn't enter, intervene in life, and miracles were impossible. I mean, this, this country has never totally uh, extracted itself from those roots. Oh, yes, we've had... Subsequently, the Second Great Awakening, which, which broke out in 1799 and went on for about the next 20 years or so, in which there were revivals across this land and great camp meetings and wonderful things happened. But we still have a, a basic faith in the ability of the power of the human mind to believe that we can reason and rationalize through each situation. 
And, you know, you think about it, for example, where in the world does the doctrine of purgatory come from? The doctrine of purgatory doesn't come out of Scripture. It comes out of the reasonableness of it. Purgatory is totally reasonable. It seems only reasonable to us that if, if uh, you live in this life, it's hard to say, well, this person's good and this person's bad, and there's nobody in between. And so there's heaven and there's hell. I mean, it's either 100% or it's zero, you know, kind of situation. And we don't like that. <laughs> We're in a country that believes in the class average, you know. Everybody should be sort of around a C, <laughs> which would be purgatory, <laughs> you know. None of us is good enough to get to heaven, but, you know, most of us, except maybe a few like Hitler and Stalin and Attila the Hun and so forth, they ought to go to hell. But everybody else is kind of in that middle ground, and they ought to go to purgatory where we kind of get cleaned up so that we can make it to heaven. That's very rational and very reasonable. It just doesn't happen to be Scripture, you know. There's no, absolutely no support for such an idea. It's purely a human thought. To, to realize, you see, and that's where the role of faith is so profound. Because it's solely because we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior to have cleansed us from our sin, no matter how crummy we think we are as Christians, and how much we kind of zigzag around the course, and how many times we may have fallen on our face this week, to constantly believe that we will be eternally with God forever in His perfect heaven, because in His eyes we are perfect. He has imputed Christ's righteousness to us so that we are clean. And we have the right to eternal life. That's not rational. But it is a statement of faith that we must grasp. And we have seen in Abraham and Sarah, people who have failed so miserably. And yet God says... Abraham is my friend. Well, God puts Abraham and Sarah through a great trial to test them so that they will know their own uh, strength of faith, so that they will further drive their roots into the living God and live according to his principles. Let me read quickly from 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice greatly with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Remember the words of Jesus to Thomas? Thomas, you believe because you've put your hand in my side and you've seen the holes pierced in my hands. Blessed are those, though, who have never seen and yet believe. That's us. We have never seen the holes in Jesus' side. He has never stood in our midst with the blood dripping from his body. And yet we believe. We believe because God has given to us faith and he has spoken to us through his word. And we have been born again because of that faith that he has given to us to believe in him.
And trials come into our lives so that that faith will grow deeper and deeper and deeper. Sometimes we may say, oh God, why me? Or, or we may say, oh God, I don't even believe you hear my prayer. But as the trial works its way through our lives, hopefully, ultimately, our faith is driven deeper in Him. And the next time such a trial comes along, it doesn't seem so serious as it did the first time because our faith is stronger and we're able to serve Him. And, and what is the ultimate uh, fruit of that? Well, it says in, in 1 Peter here that it's to the praise and the glory of Jesus Christ. It's to His honor and glory. And that faith is more precious than gold or silver or anything this world has to offer. Now think of the peacock throne of the Shah of Iran, just loaded down with, with emeralds and pearls and rubies and all those wonderful things, and just think it's nothing compared to the faith of a single individual who believes in God. That's true treasure in God's eyes. The rest of it is only that which perishes. Now, in the case of the Israelites, as they were traveling out of Egypt through the Sinai and ultimately into the land, as a result of the Exodus, God was leading them into the promised land, and He gave them all these blessings that we read about in the 8th chapter of Deuteronomy. You're going to be in a land that flows with milk and honey. The streams flow in the valleys. There are going to be pomegranate trees and olive trees and vineyards and fields of barley and wheat. But you know, unless we are totally committed to God, when we enter into a situation like that, we can be tempted to begin to take our spiritual ease because, you know, as, as one of the prophets said, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Those who think because they belong to the nation of Israel and because God's temple stands in Jerusalem, no ill can come to them. And God, just to show them how far that was from the truth, destroyed the temple or allowed it to be destroyed by the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and then later by the hands of the Romans under Titus. It's so easy to let our hearts grow cold, complacent, or as we read in Deuteronomy, proud. You know, Nebuchadnezzar stood on the roof of his building uh, of his palace there in, in uh, Babylon and said, Is this not great Babylon which I have built? By my might, by my power, by my wealth, by my glory, I've constructed this wonderful city. Now, God doesn't always respond as he did to, to Nebuchadnezzar, where he speaks out of heaven and says, No, you know, and, and puts him out in the field for seven years eating grass. That's you know, about all the glory he had. But God speaks to us through the Scripture to know that nothing we have is really the result of our own strength and ability and power. It's God's gift to us. God has enabled us to do that. God has given us the wisdom, the strength to do those things, the talents, whatever they are. And that's what's so wrong in our society where, you know, you see it's mostly, I suppose, in sports, but it's everywhere, where, you know, somebody performs a, a, a scoring thing and they go through their little jig about how wonderful they are. You know, everybody look at me. I'm, aren't I Joe Wonderful, you know? Because I've scored this touchdown or I've uh, dunked this basket or whatever I've done. You know, and it, it's, it's so 
flies in the opposite direction of what Scripture teaches. That doesn't mean you have to, you know, if you score a, a touchdown, you have to go hide in a hole someplace. But glory goes to God. And we see this in the business world and everywhere else, too. You know? We have our Howard Hughes, you know, who become so incredibly wealthy and end up living like he ended up and dying as miserably as he died. Or, you know, you can go through the whole thing. We've all heard that uh, story that was told uh, about the, the great men of wealth just before the Depression and how they met and, and all reveled in their great wealth that they had and then three or four years into the Depression, how they went through the list of those guys and most of them were dead, most of them by their own hand because they had lost all that life really mattered to them. You know, John Locke said that the inalienable rights of, of the human being are life, liberty, and happiness. And then uh, Thomas Jefferson came along and said in our Constitution, I mean our uh, Declaration of Independence, that they are life, liberty, and Pursuit of happiness. Well, I got that backwards, didn't I? P pursuit of happiness. Locke said life, liberty, and property. So uh, what Jefferson is saying is that happiness is equivalent to property. So the more property we have, possessions, whatever they mean, the more happy we are. See, that was the viewpoint of a deist, which Jefferson was. And that's the viewpoint of the world. But that's not God's viewpoint. Possessions mean nothing. And that's what God is proving to Abraham and Sarah here. Because he was, in effect, going to take from them, it seemed, their most precious possession. Abraham and Sarah were blessed by God. They had riches. They had fame. They had peace. They had longevity. I mean, by that time, she was 100 at least, and he was 110 or more. And they also had the promised son. But suddenly God brought a trial. And he brought that trial specifically for the purpose of case hardening, if you will, their faith. And to demonstrate what is really important in life. That ultimate faith in God is what is so much more important than anything we possess and anyone we possess. Anything we can do, that faith in God is the great jewel. As a result, Abraham becomes to us in Scripture the foremost example or one of the foremost examples of what great faith was to be and what we are to emulate. Even if you will, blind faith. We have no record there that he questioned God I'm not saying he didn't question. In fact, in a moment I'll indicate what questions I think he had. But there's no record that he spoke any of them to God. Now, as I said before, there's, there's nothing to indicate that God had spoken to him recently, and yet when God spoke, instantly he responded. He had not grown dull of hearing because he hadn't heard from God in ten years or so. What God said, of course, wasn't what Abraham expected to hear. You know, God's speaking. Now, what's God going to say to me? He's going to say, Abraham, I'm just going to again remind you of the great blessings I'm pouring out upon you. I'm sure that's more what he expected because God had so many times already done this. Clear back in the 12th chapter, 35, 40 years before the time we're talking about, God had, you know, first 
made the promise, and then he had followed it up at various intervals, as we have already noted. That's probably what he expected. But then what God said, which can be boiled down to just a few words, take Isaac to Moriah and sacrifice him there. Whoa. Can you imagine the impact of that on the mind of Abraham? What? You know, <laughs> what did you say? You know, I, I believe Abraham had a whole mind full of questions. They aren't recorded here. It, nothing saying that he said, well, but God, but you know. But in his mind, I think there were many questions. Was that really God I heard? Could that have been a different voice? Oh, he knew God's voice. He had heard it so often, he knew it was God's voice. But can he really be asking me to perform human sacrifice like a heathen? Is he going to kill the promise? Does he want me to kill the promised son? After all, God has made all these promises as to the great nation he'd raise up from this son. How in the world can he do that if I sacrifice Isaac? I think all kinds of questions boil through his mind. But he was conditioned to obey. God commanded, and so he moved to obey. He was a man whose faith was so rock solid and so deep that he couldn't think of an alternative. He couldn't think of disobedience, of telling God, no, I won't do it, because God had proved himself faithful so, so often through his life that he could not think in any other way. Can you imagine? Think about it. It doesn't say anything here about it. He had to tell Sarah. This was her son, Laughter. He's going to go tell Sarah. God has said for me to take Abraham, uh, Isaac up to the mountain over there and slay him. Make a burnt offering out of him. Sarah's going to say, oh, well, whatever you got to do. <laughs> you know, Sarah's going to go through the roof of the tent. <laughs> what was her response? No, he couldn't possibly just say, well, Isaac and I are going for a, a, a journey. What for? Oh, just, I want to show him the land. No, and, and then have to explain when he gets back why he has no Isaac. No, I think he had to tell her what God had said. And the fact that we don't have any record here of, of Sarah just, you know, going off the beam indicates the faith she had in God too. That God is faithful and God will do what is right in this particular situation. Now, we can be so thankful for the New Testament when it comes to some of the enigmas of the Old Testament. Let me read uh, from Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, notice the wording here, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. Now notice, he considered that God was able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. That's how strong his faith was. Had he ever seen anybody raised from the dead? No record of it in Scripture. But he believed that if this is what God wanted, 
God could raise that very son even from the ashes of the altar. And you'll notice the past tense statement there. He offered up Isaac. That means not that he actually slew his son, but in his heart he had already given up Isaac to God. He had surrendered him to the Almighty. He said, God, he's yours. He had already made the offering in his own heart. And God saw that with his, you know, with his eternal mind, and he knew that, I mean, it had been accomplished. And he was given back to him, the scripture says, as a type. As a type of what? Well, obviously as a type of Christ. God would offer up his son, who actually, of course, would die and shed his blood on the cross. But he would rise from the dead and again walk amongst those disciples and live today, ever liveth, the scripture says. And he dwells in our hearts as a testimony of the reality of that truth. So what kind of a man was Abraham? A man of fantastic faith. But not yet, I mean, I mean but not non-human. Because as James tells us, even referring to, to Elijah, he was a, a man of flesh and blood and problems and trials and tribulations as you and I are. No man who's ever walked in this planet, no human being save the Son of God, is worthy to be put on a pedestal or to be stuck up in some niche someplace and looked up to as some kind of semi-saint, you know, in the sense of a halo around his head type deal. But these are witnesses to us of the mighty power of God and of the faithfulness of God and of how people can be men and women of faith. And that's to encourage us to be men and women of faith. And we may not be asked to literally take and offer our child as a burnt offering, but, you know, if God says, I want that son, I want that daughter to go to Ujibuju and, and teach the Hunjidunjis about Jesus Christ, are we going to say, oh, no, God, not him. I want him to grow up to become a champion baseball player or something, you know, and I want his name in lights. No, God, that, that, that is a great sacrifice, you know. For many, because many, many, if you go back to the early history of Protestant missions, or American missions, let's say, even in the 19th century, the early history of the Alliance, the first missionaries that were sent out were dead within a year or so of the time they arrived in the field. Was that a waste? Were those people being poured out like Mary poured the ointment on Jesus' feet and, and uh, Judah said, what a waste? Were they a waste? No, they weren't a waste. Just as the five who died on Palm Beach in, in Ecuador were not a waste. Their lives were used by God to stimulate greater effort in world missions, to stimulate prayer and uh, giving and to broaden missions. And to this very day has brought great fruit even amongst the very pagan peoples to, who, to whom they went. Hundreds have come to Christ in that very Warani or Auka as we know them, tribe. And so that needs to be the sense of our understanding of this passage. Well, next week we're going to pick up with verse 2 and look at the very first use in Scripture of the word love. 
And notice how it fits right in this particular passage of Scripture.